Section eleven of Widdershins by Oliver Onions. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Don W. Jenkins. Eek Yucket. A Tale of Artistic Conscience. Introduction. As I lighted my guests down the stairs of my Chelsea lodgings, turned up the hall gas that they might see the steps at the front door, and shook hands with them, I bade them good-night the more heartily that I was glad to see their backs. Lest this should seem but an inhospitable confession, let me state first that they had invited themselves, dropping in in ones and twos, until seven or eight of them had assembled in my garret, and, secondly, that I was rather extraordinarily curious to know why, at close on midnight, the one I knew least well of all had seen fit to remain after the others had taken their departure. To these two considerations I must add a third, namely, that I had become tardily conscious that, if Andriovsky had not lingered of himself, I should certainly have asked him to do so. It was nothing more than a glance, swift and momentary, directed by Andriovsky to myself, while the others had talked, that I traced this desire to see more of the little Polish painter. But a glance derives its import from the circumstance under which it is given. That rapid turning of his eyes in my direction an hour before had held a hundred questions, implications, criticisms, incredulities, condemnations, it had been one of those uncovenanted gestures that hold the promise of the treasures of an eternal friendship. I wondered as I turned down the gas again and remounted the stairs what personal message and reproach in it had lumped me in with the others. And by the time I had reached my own door again a phrase had fitted itself in my mind to that quick, ironical turning of Andriovsky's eyes. Et tu, Brute! He was standing where I had left him, his small shabby figure in the attitude of a diminutive colossus on my hearth-rug. About him were the recently vacated chairs, solemnly and ridiculously suggestive of still continuing the high and choice conversation that had lately finished. The same fancy had evidently taken Andriovsky, for he was turning from chair to chair, his head a little on one side, mischievously and aggravatingly smiling as one of them, the deep wicker chair that Jameson had occupied, suddenly gave a little creak of itself, as wicker will when released from a strain, his smile broadened to a grin. I had been on the point of sitting down in that chair, but I changed my mind and took another. "'That's right,' said Andriovsky, in that wonderful English which he had picked up in less than three years. "'Don't sit in the wisdom seat. You might profane it. I knew what he meant. I felt for my pipe and slowly filled it, not replying. Then, slowly wagging his head from side to side, with his eyes humorously and banteringly on mine, he uttered the very words I had mentally associated with that glance of his. "'Et tu, Brute,' he said, wagging away, so that with each wag the lenses of his spectacles caught the light of the lamp on the table. I too smiled as I felt for a match. "'It was rather much, wasn't it?' I said. But he suddenly stopped his wagging and held up a not very clean forefinger. His whole face was altogether too confoundedly intelligent. "'Oh, no, you don't,' he said peremptorily. 
not getting out of it like that the moment they've turned their backs no running what is it no running with the hare and hunting with the hounds you helped you know i confess i fidgeted a little but hang it all what could i do they were in my place i broke out he chuckled enjoying my discomfiture then his eyes fell on those absurd and solemn chairs again look at em the art shades in conference he chuckled that rush seated one it was talking half an hour ago about scherzos in silver and grey nice fresh green stuff to shut him up i told him that he would find cigarettes and tobacco on the table scherzos in silver and grey he chuckled again as he took a cigarette all this perhaps needs some explanation it had been the usual thing usual in those days twenty years ago smarming about art and the arts and so forth they we as apparently andriovsky had lingered behind for the purpose of reminding me had perhaps talked a little more soaringly than the ordinary that was all there had been jameson in the wicker chair full to the lips and running over with the colour suggestions of the late edward calvert gibbs in a pulpy state of adoration of the less legitimate side of the painting of watts and magnani who had advanced that an essential oneness underlies all the arts and had triumphantly proved his thesis by analogy with the law of the correlation of forces a book called music and morals had appeared about that time and on it they we had risen to regions of kite-high lunacy about colour symphonies orgies of formless colour thrown on a magic lantern screen views you enough at this time of day a young newspaper man too had made mental notes of our adjectives for use in his weekly i nearly spelt it weekly half column of art criticism and and here was andriovsky grinning at the chairs and mimicking it all with diabolical glee scherzos in silver and grey word pastels lyrics in stone he chuckled and what was it the fat fellow said a siren song in marble Phew! well i'll get along i shall just be in time to get a pint of bitter to wash it all down if i'm quick bah he broke out suddenly good men build up form and forms keep the arts each after its kind raise up the dikes so that we shan't all be swept away by night and nothingness and these rats come nosing and burrowing and undermining it all et tu brute well when you've finished rubbing it in i grunted as if you didn't know better is that your way of getting back on em now that you've chucked drawing and gone in for writing books phew i well i'll go and get my pint of beer but he didn't go for his pint of beer instead he began to prowl about my room pryingly nosingly touching the things here and there i watched him as he passed from one thing to another he was very little and very very shabby his trousers were frayed and the sole of one of his boots flapped distressingly his old bowler hat he had not thought it necessary to wait until he got outside before thrusting it on the back of his head was so limp in substance that i verily believed that had he run incautiously downstairs he would have found when he got to the bottom that its crown had sunk in of its own weight in spite of his remark about the pint of beer i doubt if he had the price of one in his pocket what's this brutus a concertina he suddenly asked stopping before the collapsible case in which i kept my rather old dress suit 
I told him what it was, and he hoisted up his shoulders. "'And these things?' he asked, moving to something else. They were a pair of boot-trees, of which I had permitted myself the economy. I remember they cost me four shillings in the old Brompton Road. "'And that's your bath, I suppose. Dumbbells, too. And, oh, good Lord!' He had picked up and dropped again as if it had been hot, somebody or other's card with the date of a day written across the corner of it. As I helped him on with his overcoat, he made no secret of the condition of its armholes and lining. I don't for one moment suppose that the garment was his. I took a candle to light him down as soon as it should please him to depart. "'Well, so long and joy to you on the high road to success,' he said with another grin for which I could have bundled him down the stairs. In later days I never looked to Andriovsky for tact, but I stared at him for his lack of it that night, and as I stared I noticed for the first time the broad and low pylon of his forehead, his handsome mouth and chin, and the fire and wit and scorn that smoldered behind his cheap spectacles. I looked again, and his smallness, his malice, his pathetic little braggings about his poverty seemed all to disappear. He had strolled back to my hearthrug, wishing— I had no doubt now to be able to exclaim suddenly that it was too late for the pint of beer for which he hadn't the money, and to curse his luck, and the pygmy quality of his colossus-ship had somehow gone. As I watched him, a neighboring clock struck the half-hour, and he did even as I had surmised, cursed the closing time of the English public-houses. I lighted him down. For one moment under the hall-glass he almost dropped his jesting manner. "'You do know better, Harrison, you know,' he said. "'But, of course, you're going to be a famous author in almost no time. "'Oh, casse no garrets for you. "'It was a treat. "'The way you handled those fellows, really. "'Well, don't forget us others when you're up there. "'I may want you to write my life some day.' "'I heard the slapping of the loose sole as he shuffled down the path. "'At the gate he turned for a moment. "'Good night, Brutus,' he called. When I had mounted to my garret again, my eyes fell once more on that ridiculous assemblage of empty chairs, all solemnly talking to one another. I burst out into a laugh. Then I undressed, put my jacket on the hanger, took the morrow's boots from the trees, and treed those I had removed, changed the pair of trousers under my mattress, and went, still laughing at the chairs, to bed. This was Michael Andriovsky, the Polish painter, who died four weeks ago. One, I knew the reason of Mashka's visit the moment she was announced. Even in the stressful moments of the funeral, she had found time to whisper to me that she hoped to call upon me at an early date. I dismissed the amanuensis to whom I was dictating the last story of the forced series of Martin Renard, gave a few hasty instructions to my secretary, and told the servant to show Miss Andriovsky into the drawing-room, to ask her to be so good as to excuse me for five minutes, to order tea at once, and then to bring my visitor up to the library. A few minutes later she was shown into the room. She was dressed in the same plainly cut costume of dead black she had worn at the funeral, and had pushed up her heavy veil over the close-fitting cap of black fur that accentuated her Slavonic appearance. I noticed again with distress the pallor of her face and the bistred rings that weeks of nursing had put under her dark eyes. I noticed also her resemblance in feature and stature to her brother. I placed a chair for her. 
the tea-tray followed her in and without more than a murmured greeting she peeled off her gloves and prepared to preside at the tray she had filled the cups and i had handed her toast before she spoke then i suppose you know what i've come about she said i nodded long long ago you promised it nobody else can do it the only question is when that's the only question i agreed we naturally she continued after a glance in which her eyes mutely thanked me for my implied promise are anxious that it should be as soon as possible but of course i shall quite understand she gave a momentary glance around my library i helped her out you mean that i'm a very important person nowadays and that you're afraid to trespass on my time never mind that i shall find time for this but tell me before we go any further exactly how you stand and precisely what it is you expect briefly she did so it did not in the least surprise me to learn that her brother had died penniless and if you hadn't undertaken the life she said he might just as well not have worked in poverty all these years you can at least see to his fame i nodded again gravely and ruminated for a moment then i spoke i can write it fully and in detail up to five years ago i said you know what happened then i tried my best to help him but he never would let me tell me mashka why he wouldn't sell me that portrait i knew instantly from her quick confusion that her brother had spoken to her about the portrait he had refused to sell me and had probably told her the reason for his refusal i watched her as she evaded the question as well as she could you know how queer he was about who he sold things to and as for those five years in which you saw less of him schofield will tell you all you want to know i relinquished the point who's schofield i asked instead he was a very good friend of michael's of both of us you can talk quite freely to him i want to say at the beginning that i should like him to be associated with you in this i don't know how i divined on the spot her relation to schofield whoever he was she told me that he too was a painter michael thought very highly of his things she said i don't know them i replied you probably wouldn't she returned but i caught the quick drop of her eyes from their brief excursion around my library and i felt something within me stiffen a little it did not need mashka andreovsky to remind me that i had not attained my position without let us say splitting certain differences the looseness of the expression can be corrected hereafter life consists very largely of compromises you doubtless know my name whichever country or hemisphere you happen to live in as that of the creator of martin renard the famous and popular detective and i was not at that moment disposed to apologize either to mashka or schofield or anybody else for having written the stories at the bidding of a gaping public the moment the public showed that it wanted something better i was prepared to give it in the meantime i sat in my very comfortable library securely shielded from distress by my balance at my bankers well i said after a moment let's see how we stand and first as to what you're likely to get out of this it goes without saying of course that by writing the life i can get you any amount of fame advertisement newspaper talk and all the things that it struck me michael always treated with especial scorn my name alone i say will do that but for anything else i'm by no means so sure you see i explained it doesn't follow that because i can sell hundreds of thousands of you know what 
that I can sell anything I've a mind to sign. I said it confident that she had not lived all those years with her brother without having learned the axiomatic nature of it. To my discomfiture she began to talk like a callow student. I should have thought that it followed that if you could sell something— she hesitated only for a moment, then courageously gave the other stuff its proper adjective. Something rotten. You could have sold something good when you had the chance. Then if you thought that, you were wrong, I replied briefly and concisely. Michael couldn't, of course, she said, putting Michael out of the question with a little wave of her hand, because Michael was, I mean, Michael wasn't a businessman. You are. I'm speaking as one, I replied. I don't waste time in giving people what they don't want. That is business. I don't undertake your brother's life as a matter of business, but as an inestimable privilege. I repeat, it doesn't follow that the public will buy it. But, but, she stammered, the public will buy a pill if they see your name on the testimonial. A pill, yes, I said sadly. Genius and a pill were, alas, different things. But, I added more cheerfully, you can never tell what the public will do. They might buy it, but there's no telling except by trying. Well, Schofield thinks they will, she informed me with decision. I dare say he does, if he's an artist. They mostly do, I replied. He doesn't think Michael will ever be popular, she emphasized the adjective slightly, but he does think he has a considerable following if they could only be discovered. I sighed. All artists think that. They will accept any compromise except the one that is offered to them. I tried to explain to Mashka that in this world we have to stand to the chances of all or nothing. You've got to be the one or the other. I don't know that it matters very much which, I said. There's Michael's way, and there's mine. That's all. However, we'll try it. All you can say to me, and more, I'll say to a publisher for you. But he'll probably wink at me. For a moment she was silent. Then she said, Schofield rather fancies one publisher. Oh, who's he? I asked. She mentioned a name. If I knew anything at all of business, she might as well have offered the life of Michael Andriovsky to the Religious Tract Society at once. Hm. And has Mr. Schofield any other suggestions? I inquired. He had several. I saw that Schofield's position would have to be defined before we went any further. Hm. I said again. Well, I shall have to rely on Schofield for those five years in which I saw little of Michael, but unless Schofield knows more of publishing than I do, and can enforce a better contract and a larger sum on account than I can, I really think, Mashka, that you'll do better to leave things to me. For one thing, it's only fair to me. My name hasn't much of an artistic value nowadays, but it has a very considerable commercial one, and my worth to publishers isn't as a writer of the lives of geniuses. I could see that she didn't like it, but that couldn't be helped. It had to be so. Then, as we sat for a time in silence over the fire, I noticed again how like her brother she was. She was not, it was true, much like him as he had been on that last visit of mine to him, and I sighed as I remembered that visit. The dreadful scene had come back to me. On account, I supposed, of the divergence of our paths, I had not even heard of his illness until almost the finish. Immediately I had hastened to the Hampstead home, only to find him already in agony. He had not been too far gone to recognize me, however, for he had muttered something brokenly about knowing better, that a spasm had interrupted. 
Besides myself, only Mashka had been there, and I had been thankful for the summons that had called her for a moment out of the room. I had still retained his already cold hand. His brow had worked with that dreadful struggle, and his eyes had been closed. But suddenly he had opened them, and the next moment had sat up on his pillow. He had striven to draw his hand from mine. "'Who are you?' he had suddenly demanded, not knowing me. I had come close to him. "'You know me, Andreovsky. Harrison?' I had asked sorrowfully. I had been on the point of repeating my name, but suddenly, after holding my eyes for a moment with a look, the profundity and familiarity of which I cannot express, he had broken into the most ghastly, haunting laugh I have ever heard. "'Harrison?' The words had broken throatily from him. "'Oh, yes, I know you. You shall very soon know that I know you, if, if—' The cough and rattle had come as Mashka had rushed into the room. In ten seconds, Andreovsky had fallen back, dead. 2. That same evening I began to make notes for Andreovsky's life. On the following day, the last of the fourth series of the Martin Renards occupied me until I was thankful to get to bed. But thereafter I could call rather more of my time my own, and I began in good earnest to devote myself to the life. Mashka had spoken no more than the truth when she had said that of all men living none but I could write that life. His remaining behind in my Chelsea garret that evening after the others had left had been the beginning of a friendship that, barring the lapse of five years at the end, had been for twenty years of completest intimacy. Whatever money there might or might not be in the book, I had seen my opportunity in it the opportunity to make it the vehicle for all the aspirations faiths enthusiasms and exaltations we had shared and i myself did not realize until i began to note them down one tithe of the subtle links and associations that had welded our souls together even the outward and visible signs of these had been wonderful setting out from one or other of the score of garrets and cheap lodgings we had in our time inhabited we had wandered together day after day night after night far down east where as we had threaded our way among the barrels of soused herrings and the stalls and barrows of unleavened bread he had taught me scraps of hebrew and polish and yiddish up into the bright west where he could never walk a quarter of a mile without meeting one of his extraordinary acquaintances furred music-hall managers, hawkers of bootlaces, commercial magnates of his own faith, touts, crossing-sweepers, painted women, into Soho where he had names for the very horses on the cab-ranks and the dogs who slumbered under the counters of the cellars of French literature, out to the naphtha lights and cries of the Saturday-night street-markets of Islington and North End Road, into city churches on wintry afternoons, into the studios of famous artists full of handsomely dressed women, into the studios of artists not famous, at the ends of dark and breakneck corridors, to tea at the suburban homes of barmaids and chorus girls, to dinner in the stables of a cavalry barracks, to supper in cabmen's shelters. He was possessed in some mysterious way of the passwords to doors and hoardings behind which excavations were in progress. He knew by name the butchers of the Deptford Yards, the men in the blood-caked clothes so inured to blood that they may not with safety to their lives swear at one another. He took me into an opium cellar within a stone's throw of Oxford Street, and into a roof-chamber to call upon certain friends of his. 
Well, they said they were fire extinguishers, so I'd better not say they were bombs. Up, down, here, there, good report, but more frequently evil. We had known this side of our London as well as two men may, and our other adventures and peregrinations, not of the body, but of the spirit, but these must be spoken of in their proper place. I had arranged with Mashka that Schofield should bring me the whole of the work Andriovsky had left behind him, and he arrived late one afternoon in a four-wheeler with four great packages done up in brown paper. I found him to be a big, shaggy-browed, red-haired, raw-boned Lancashire man of five-and-thirty, given to confidential demonstrations at the length of a button-shank quite unconscious of the gulf between his words and his right to employ them, and bent on asserting an equality that I did not dispute by a rather aggressive use of my surname. Andriovsky had appointed him as executor, and he had ever the air of suspecting that the appointment was going to be challenged. "'I'm glad to be associated with ye in this melancholy duty, Harrison,' he said. "'Now we won't waste words. Miss Andriovsky has told me precisely how matters stand.' I had, as ye know, the honour to be poor Michael's close friend for a period of five years, and my knowledge of him is entirely at your disposal. I answered that I should be seriously handicapped without it. Just so. It is Miss Andriovsky's desire that we should pull together. Now, in the first place, what is your idea about the form the book should take? In the first place, if you don't mind, I replied, Perhaps we'd better run over together the things you've brought. The daylight will be gone soon. Just as ye like, Harrison, he said. Just as ye like. It's all the same to me. I cleared a space about my writing-table at the window, and we turned to the artistic remains of Michael Andriovsky. I was astonished, first, at the enormous quantity of the stuff, and next at its utter and complete revelation of the man. In a flash I realized how superb that portion, at least, of the book was going to be. Schofield explained that the work he had brought represented but a fraction of the whole that was at our disposal. "'You'll know with what foolish generosity poor Michael always gave his things away,' he said. "'Hallard has a grand set, so has Connolly, and from time to time he behaved very handsomely to myself. Artists of very considerable talents, both Hallard and Connolly, are—' Michael thought very highly of their abilities. They expressed the deepest interest in the shape your work will take, and that reminds me, I myself have drafted a rough scenario of the form it appeared to me the life might with advantage be cast in. A purely private opinion you'll understand, Harrison, which you'll be entirely at liberty to disregard. Well, let's finish with the work first, I said with boards loose sheets scraps of paper notes studies canvases stretched and stripped from their stretchers we paved half the library floor schofield keeping up all the time a running fire of grand grand a masterpiece a gem that harrison they were all that he said and presently i ceased to hear his voice the splendour of the work issued undimmed even from the severe test of Schofield's praise, and I thought again with pride how I, I was the only man living who could adequately write that life. "'Aren't they grand? Aren't they great?' Schofield chanted monotonously. "'They are,' I replied, coming to a consciousness of his presence again. "'But what's that?' Secretively he had kept one package until the last. He now removed its wrappings and set it against a chair. "'There!' he cried. "'I'll thank you, Harrison, for your opinion of that.' 
It was the portrait Andriovsky had refused to sell me, a portrait of himself. The portrait was the climax of the display. The Lancastrians still talked, but I, profoundly moved, mechanically gathered up the drawings from the floor and returned them to their proper packages and folios. I was dining at home, alone that evening, and for form's sake I asked this faithful dog of Andriovsky's to share my meal. But he excused himself. He was dining with Hallard and Connolly. When the drawings were all put away, all save that portrait, he gave an inquisitive glance round my library. It was the same glance as Mashka had given when she had feared to intrude on my time, but Schofield did these things with a much more heavy hand. He departed, but not before telling me that even my mansion contained such treasures as it had never held before. That evening, after glancing at Schofield's scenario, I carefully folded it up again for return to him, lest when the book should appear he should miss the pleasure of saying that I had had his guidance but had disregarded it. Then I sat down at my writing-table and took out the loose notes I had made. I made other jottings, each on a blank sheet for subsequent amplification, and the sheets overspread the large leather-topped table and thrust one another up the standard of the incandescent with the pearly silk shade. The firelight shone low and richly in the dusky spaces of the large apartment, and the thick carpet and the double doors made the place so quiet that I could hear my watch ticking in my pocket. I worked for an hour, and then, for the purpose of making yet other notes, I rose, crossed the room, and took down the three or four illustrated books to which, in the earlier part of his career, Andriovsky had put his name. I carried them to the table, and twinkled as I opened the first of them. It was a book of poems, and in making the designs for them, Andriovsky had certainly not found for himself. Almost any one of the art shades, as he called them, could have done this thing equally well, and I twinkled again. I did not propose to have much mercy on that. Already Schofield's words had given birth to a suspicion in my mind, that Andriovsky, in permitting these fellows, Hallard, Connolly, and the rest, to suppose that he thought highly of them and their work, had been giving play to that malicious humor of his, and they naturally did not see the joke. That joke, too, was between himself dead and me, preparing to write his life, as if he had been there to hear me. I chuckled and spoke in a low voice. "'You were pulling their legs, Michael, you know. A little rough on them you were. But there's a book here of yours that I'm going to tell the truth about. You and I won't pretend to one another. It's a rotten book, and both you and I know it. I don't know what it was that caused me suddenly to see just then something that I had been looking at long enough without seeing, that portrait of himself that I had set leaning against the back of a chair at the end of my writing-table. It stood there just within the soft penumbra of shadow cast by the silk-shaded light. The canvas had been enlarged, the seam of it clumsily sewn by Andriovsky's own hand, but in that half-light the rough ridge of paint did not show, and I confess that the position and effect of the thing startled me for a moment. Had I cared to play a trick with my fancy, I could have imagined the head wagging from side to side, with such rage and fire was it painted. He had had the temerity to dash a reflection across one of the glasses of his spectacles, concealing the eye behind it. The next moment I had given a short laugh. "'So you're there, are you? Well—' I know you agree very heartily about that book of poems, hi-ho. If I remember rightly, you made more money out of that book than out of the others put together, but I'm going to tell the truth about it. 
I know better, you know. Chancing before I turned in that night to reopen one of his folios, I came across a drawing, there by accident, I don't doubt, that confirmed me in my suspicion that Andriovsky had had his quiet joke with Schofield, Hallard, Connolly, and company. It was a sketch of Schofield's, imitative, deplorable, a dreadful show-up of incapacity. Well enough drawn, in a sense, it was, and I remembered how Andriovsky had ever urged that drawing of itself did not exist. I winked at the portrait. I saw his point. He himself had no peer, and, rather than invite comparison with stars of the second magnitude, he chose his intimates from among the peddlers of the wares that had the least possible connection with his art. He, too, had understood that the compromise must be entirely accepted or totally refused, and while, in the divergence of our paths, he had done the one thing and I the other, we had each done it thoroughly, with vigour and with persistence, and each could esteem the other, if not as a co-worker, at least as an honourable and out-and-out -out opposite. 3. Within a fortnight I was so deep in my task that, in the realest sense, the greater part of my life was in the past. The significance of those extraordinary peregrinations of ours had been in the opportunity they had afforded for a communion of brain and spirit of unusual rarity, and all this determined to my work with the accumulated force of its long penning up. I have spoken of Andriovsky's contempt for such as had the conception of their work that it was something they did, as distinct from something they were, and unless I succeeded in making it plain that, not as a mere figure of speech and loose hyperbole, but starkly and literally, Andriovsky was everything he did, my tale will be pointless. There was not one of the basic facts of life, of faith, honor, truth-speaking, falsehood, betrayal, sin, that he did not turn, not to moral interpretations as others do, but to the holy purposes of his noble and passionate art. For any man, sin is only mortal when it is sin against that which he knows to be immortally true. And the things Andriovsky knew to be immortally true were the things that he had gone down into the depths in order to bring forth and place upon his paper or canvas. These things are not for the perusal of many. Unless you love the things that he loved with a fervor comparable in kind, if not in degree with his own, you may not come near them. Truth, the highest thing a man can keep, he said, cannot be brought down. A man only attains it by proving his right to it and I think I need not further state his views on the democratization of art. Of any result from the elaborate processes of art education, he held out no hope whatever. It is in a man, or it isn't, he ever declared. If it is, he must bring it out for himself. If it isn't, let him turn to something useful and have done with it. I need not press the point that in these things he was almost a solitary. He made of these general despotic principles the fiercest personal applications. I have heard his passionate outbreak of thief, liar, fool, over a drawing when it has seemed to him that a man has not vouched with the safety of his immortal soul for the shapes and lines he has committed to it. I have seen him get into such a rage with the eyes of the artist upon him. I have heard the ice and vinegar of his words when a good man, for money, has consented to modify and emasculate his work. And there lingers in my memory his side of a telephone conversation in which he told a publisher who had suggested that he should do the same thing precisely what he thought of him. 
and on the other hand he once walked from aldgate to putney hill with a loose heel on one of his boots to see a man of whom he had seen but a single drawing see him he did too in spite of the man's footman his liveried parlour-maid and the daunting effect of the electric brougham at the door he's a good man he said to me afterwards ruefully looking at the place where his boot-heel had been you've got to take your good where you find it i don't care whether he's a rich amateur or skin and grief in a garret as long as he's got the stuff in him nobody else could have fetched me up from the east end this afternoon so long see you in a week or so this was the only time i ever knew him break that sacred time in which he celebrated each year the passover and the feast of tabernacles i doubt whether this observance of the ritual of his faith was of more essential importance to him than that other philosophical religion towards which he sometimes leaned i have said what his real religion was but to the life with these things and others as a beginning i began to add page to page phase to phase and in a time the shortness of which astonished me i had pretty well covered the whole of the first ten years of our friendship mashka called rather less and schofield rather more frequently than i could have wished and my surmise that he at least was in love with her quickly became a certainty this was to be seen when they called together it was when they came together that something else also became apparent this was their slightly derisive attitude toward the means by which i had attained my success it was not the less noticeable that it took the form of compliments on the outward and visible results singly i could manage them together they were inclined to get a little out of hand i would have taxed them fairly and squarely with this singly or together but for one thing the beautiful ease with which the life was proceeding never had i felt so completely en rapport with my subject so beautifully was the thing running that i had had the idle fancy of some actual urge from andriovsky himself and each night before sitting down to work i set his portrait at my desk's end as if it had been some kind of an observance the most beautiful result of all was that i felt what i had not felt for five years that i was not doing my work but actually living and being it at times i took up the sheets i had written as ignorant of their contents as if they had proceeded from another pen so freshly they came from me and once i vow i found in my own handwriting a polish name that i might it is true have subconsciously heard at some time or other but that stirred no chord in my memory even when i saw it written mashka checked and confirmed it afterwards and i did not tell her by what odd circumstance it had issued from my pen the day did come however when i found i must have it out with schofield about this superciliousness i have mentioned the falchion had just begun to print the third series of my martin renard and this had been made the occasion of another of schofield's ponderous compliments i acknowledged it with none too much graciousness and then he said i've a doubt harrison that by this time the famous sleuth-hound of crime has become quite a creature of flesh and blood to ye it was the tone as much as the words that riled me and i replied that his doubts or the lack of them were a privacy with which i did not wish to meddle from being merely a bore the fellow was rapidly becoming insolent but i opine he'll get wearisome now and then and in that case poor michael's life will come as a grand relaxation he next observed if i meant to have it out here was my opportunity i should have thought you'd have traced a closer connection than that between the two things i remarked he shot a quick glance at me from beneath his shaggy russet brows 
"'How so? I see very little connection,' he said suspiciously. "'There's this connection, that while you speak with some freedom of what I do, you are quite willing to take advantage of it when it serves your turn.' "'Advantage, Harrison?' he said slowly. "'Of the advertisement Martin Renard gives you. I must point out that you condone a thing when you accept the benefit of it. Either you shouldn't have come to me at all, or you should deny yourself the gratification of these slurs.' slurs he repeated loweringly both of you you and miss andriovsky or mashka as i call her took court don't suppose i don't know as well as you do the exact worth of my sleuth-hound as you call him you didn't come to me solely because i knew andriovsky well you came because i've got the ear of the public also and i tell you plainly that however much you dislike it michael's fame as far as i'm of any use to him depends on the popularity of martin renard he shook his big head this is what i feared he said more i continued you can depend upon it that michael wherever he is knows all about that ay ay he said sagely i must doot your own artistic souls only to be saved by the writing of poor michael's life harrison leave that to me and michael we'll settle that in the meantime, if you don't like it, write and publish the life yourself. He bent his brows on me. It's precisely what I wanted to do from the very first, he said. If you had cared to accept my symposium in the spirit in which it was offered, I cannot see that the life would have suffered. But now, when you're next in need of my services, you'll maybe send for me. He took up his hat. I assured him and let him take it in what sense he liked that I would do so, and he left me. Not for one single moment did I intend that they should bounce me like that. With or without their sanction and countenance, I intended to write and publish that life. Schofield, in my own house, too, had had the advantage that a poor and ill-dressed man has over one who is not poor and ill-dressed. But my duty, first of all, was neither to him nor to Mashka, but to my friend. The worst of it was, however, that I had begun dimly to suspect that the Lancastrian had hit at least one nail on the head. "'Your artistic soul's only to be saved by writing poor Michael's life,' he had informed me, and it was truer than I found it pleasant to believe. Perhaps, after all, my first duty was not to Andriovsky, but to myself. I could have kicked myself that the fool had been perspicacious enough to see it, but that did not alter the fact. I saw that in the sense in which Andriovsky understood sin, I had sinned. My only defense lay in the magnitude of my sin. I had sinned thoroughly, out and out, and with a will. It had been the only respectable way, Andriovsky's own way, when he had cut the company of an academician to hobnob with a vagabond. I had at least instituted no comparison, lowered no ideal, was innocent of the accursed attitude of facing both ways that degrades all lovely and moving things. I was, by a paradox, too black a sinner not to hope for redemption. I fell into a long musing on these things. Had any of the admirers of Martin Renard entered the library of his author that night, he would have seen an interesting thing. He would have seen the creator of that idol of clerks and messenger lads and fourth-form boys frankly putting the case before a portrait propped up on a chair he would have heard that popular author haranguing pleading curiously on his defence turning the thing this way and that if you'd gone over michael the author argued you'd have done precisely the same thing if i'd stuck it out we were after all of a kind we've got to be one thing or the other isn't that so andriovsky 
since i made up my mind i've faced only one way only one way i've kept your ideal and theirs entirely separate and distinct not one single beautiful phrase will you find in the martin renards i've cut em out every one i may have ceased to worship but i profane no temple and think what i might have done what they all do they deal out the slush but with an apologetic glance at the art shades you know the style oh harrison he does that detective rubbish but that's not harrison if harrison liked to drop that he could be a fine artist i haven't done that i haven't run with the hare and hunted with the hounds i am just harrison who does that detective rubbish these other chaps schofield and connolly they're the real sinners michael the fellows who can't make up their minds to be one thing or the other artists of considerable abilities ha ha of course you know mashka's going to marry that chap what'll they do do you think he'll scrape up a few pounds out of the stew where i find thousands marry her and they'll set up a salon and talk the stuff the chairs talked that night you remember but you wait till i finish your life i laid it all before him almost as if i sought to propitiate him i might have been courting his patronage for his own life then with a start i came too to find myself talking nonsense to the portrait that years before andriovsky had refused to sell me end of eek yakut introduction and sections one through three read by don w jenkins rancho san diego california shaggybark.blogspot.com